Now, when I was young, my mom had to work really hard to get us all to take responsibility. You know, she would want me to pick up my room. She'd want my, my brother and sister to clean up after themselves. She'd want us to help with the dishes, help with the laundry. And she never could get us to buy in. You know, I, I can't understand why. But she one, one day, she came up with this brilliant idea. She had a stroke of genius. She was going to do a chore chart, right? She was going to get official. She was going to write it up on a piece of paper, put it up into sections. She was going to say which child was responsible for which chore on which day. And she was really serious about this. She gave us a big speech. You know, th- this was th- we were all going to get together and work together. And she was confident that this plan was going to work. But there was one thing missing from this plan. How she was going to convince us that it would be in our best interest to do our part. And so she tried. She came up with this chore chart. But, you know, we didn't really feel like stakeholders in keeping our house clean. It wasn't really our responsibility, right? That, that was uh, mom's responsibility. So in the end, you know, we, we, we decided to work really hard. You know, because of mom's chore chart, we worked really, really hard to stay out of work. Because it wasn't our problem. And so as parents, we have to work really hard, right, to help our children realize that our problem is actually their problem too. So we all have, have experienced the challenge of, motivate, mo- of lacking motivation to do something, right? You know, we know it needs to be done. We know something needs to change. But we really lack the motivation to actually move us to action. So the first thing we have to do is we have to realize that we have a problem. So let's think about your house and my house. What's a real easy problem that we all have? Do we have not enough stuff or do we have too much? Right? We've got too much stuff. So we have to realize that there's a problem, that we need to do something about this overabundance of stuff in our house. Second, we have to consider possible solutions. Right? Should we keep it? Should we sell it? Should we store it? Should we give it away? Should we throw it away? So considering, what are we going to do about this? And third, it's like we have to recruit ourselves and recruit other people to help us do something about this. We need to do something about the mess that's taking over our house and our closets. And there's a good chance we're going to need to recruit somebody to help us with that mess. Last week, we talked about how God, who knows the need, he positioned somebody in the king's court to drive change. And God himself provided for that to happen. You know, he provided him position. He provided favor with the king. The king himself gave letters of recommendation. He gave building materials so that Nehemiah himself could go on location and take the next step in driving the change that he himself wanted to see. And today we're going to see what Nehemiah did upon arrival in Jerusalem to move the project forward. So turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to read verses 11 through 20. Through one time, and then I'm going to go back and pull out some key lessons this morning. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, because, you know, he's been sent by the king, and now he's on location. I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate, through the jackal well, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. So we see that Jerusalem is in distress. The walls are broken down. The gates have been burned by fire. This is a big problem. 
Then I moved on toward the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the actual work. So that's interesting. He's kind of kept them in the dark. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So going back to verse 11, what's the first thing that Nehemiah does when he arrives on the scene, right? He's now on location. There's a huge problem, and he just takes time and doesn't do anything. He takes some time to ponder a few days, it says. Now, why, why, why is it like this, you know? As we, you know, he, um, this is kind of like the incubation period. He's taken some time to think about it. God has broken his heart. We've talked about this before. He's moved him to be a part of change, but this is different. Now he's on location. He's looking at the need. He's seeing it with his own eyes, and he takes time. You know, if it had been me, I would have taken some time to do some pondering. And so verse 12, he sets out at night, and he goes and examines the situation. And he said, I've kept my burden and my plan a secret. Why would he do that? So as we learned last week, Nehemiah had created a plan of action right, that only included one step, one step at this point. He said to the king, send me. The king said he was willing to send him, and so he's taken that step. Nehemiah came with official letters and building materials were either already there on site or they were on the way, so God had provided. Why would Nehemiah not immediately announce what God had put on his heart to do? The short answer was that he wasn't ready yet. Though he was confident of the need, He was confident of the Lord's favor. He still had some preparatory work to do if he was going to get the people there personally involved. Now, much time had passed since the the Jews had come back from Babylon. They were there on site. Much time had passed. Nothing had been done to address the need. I mean, it was obvious the walls were broken down. The gates were burned. There was nothing that had been done. So why was that? I mean, there were people there on site. I mean, they they had a vested interest in in the well-being of Jerusalem, but they had done nothing. Were they unaware of the need? Were they just indifferent, you know? Clearly, there's a problem here, but, you know, it's not my problem. So why would Nehemiah need to take his time? There is a problem, but it's not my problem. Verses 13 through 15. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down in its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. So what we're seeing here is an important first step for Nehemiah was to go and personally examine the situation. Go see with his own eyes, touch it with his own hands, and see what the need was. Now, the question that comes to my mind is, could not Nehemiah have done this from the king's court? Or Nehemiah had done this from the king's court. I mean, he, was, he was in a position of power and authority. He could have sent letters. 
He could have sent, you know, now he'd send a video, but he could have sent letters. He could have sent building materials. He could have sent somebody to go on his behalf and say, hey, guys, here's what needs to be done. Here's the need. Here's the solution. Now you go do it. Why didn't he do that? But Nehemiah chose to go himself on location and to look at the need with his own eyes and touch it with his own hands. This would be crucial when it came to inspiring and directing the action of the people he needed help from. You know, what would have been their response if you have somebody send a letter that talks about your neighborhood or that talks about your property and says, hey, you need to do something about that? You know, somebody from another county sends you a letter, a notice, and says, or somebody from a homeowner's association says, you need to do something about this. What's going to be your response? What do you know about it? Huh? What do you know about it? This isn't where you live. This isn't your place. This is ours. So think about the people of Jerusalem. If Nehemiah just sent a letter, how favorably would they have responded? You know, another thought is that Nehemiah has realized, even before he gets there, this is a big job. I mean, rebuilding the walls and the gates, this is a big job, and there's no way that I can do this by myself. So he's going to need help, and so he takes his time. Luke 14, chapter 14, verses 28 through 30, I thought of this uh, teaching from Jesus. I wanted to share it with you. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. So we're getting a, an insight into Nehemiah's process. He was counting the cost, and the reason was he didn't just intend to begin the good work. He wanted to finish it. So he goes on site, he gets personal knowledge of the need, and he's preparing to recruit the stakeholders. I love puzzles. Anybody like puzzles here? I love them. Now, you know what the first thing I do with a puzzle is? First, I dump out all the pieces. Oh, you know, huh? I dump out all the pieces. I flip them all over. And then the first thing I do is I find the corners. There's four of them. I find all four corners. And then I find all the edge pieces. And then I start building around the edges. And, and the reason that I do that is, you know, I, I kind of need an easy win, Right? I need to do something easy. You know, if you've got a, a small puzzle, it's no big deal. But a big puzzle, I get the corners and I get the framework around so that I can feel like I'm actually accomplishing something, right? And it kind of drives me on to take steps to finish the entire task. So that's my guess is what Nehemiah is doing because the job is much bigger than just the wall. I mean, Jerusalem has some big problems. But what he does is he says, okay, let's break this down a little bit. Let's just do the first step, which is to fix the wall. So it's kind of like that puzzle, putting together the framework. He wants the people to feel encouraged. He wants them to see God working. And as we'll see later, God uses this first project to motivate people's hearts to return to him. So verse 16 says, the stakeholders have not yet been informed. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would actually be doing the work. Now that's kind of strange, isn't it? He shows up on site and spends time, he examines the situation, but he's not yet told anybody that it's actually going to be doing the work. What he's thinking, he's not telling them. Nehemiah delayed his pitch until he had personal knowledge of the need. 
Now, I'm bad about this with my kids and my wife, if I'm honest. They come to me with an issue. They come to me with a problem. There, there's an argument. There's a problem at school. And before you can think about it, I'm already given the answer. I can see it. You know, I know what needs to happen. I know what the problem is. But you know what happens is when they first reject my advice, I have to ask myself that tough question, you know, maybe, maybe it's not such good advice. And then I have to ask, you know, okay, tell me the problem again. So you see what Nehemiah is doing. He's taking his time. He's delaying his pitch. Um, because if he just comes in there with guns blazing and says, here's what needs to happen, they say, you're just this outsider. You don't know nothing about this. We're not going to listen to you. So he's taking his time. He's building his case. He's getting ready to make his pitch. And then here's the pitch in verses 17 through 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So the first thing he does is he talks about the need. He says, we're in danger. This is risky. The walls are broken down. Anybody could come in at any time. We're in danger. We're in disgrace. This is embarrassing. This is upsetting. Look at our plight. Look at this situation. And then he proposes a solution. You know, again, starting with just the framework, just the, the, the edges of the puzzle. He says, let's rebuild the wall. Let's take a step. Let's fix things. Something, it's not completely broken down, but it's, it's a mess. So he proposes a solution. And then third, you know, he's, he's, He's just sharing with them. Think of the way things could be. I mean, you know the way they are. You know the desperate situation that we're in. If we'll take a step, if we'll fix just the wall, think of how things could be different. Think of the future, the way that it could be. Think of, think of the hope that we could have if we'll just take action together. And then thirdly, you know, he waits for their response. But before that, he shares a story. He talks about God's favor. He talks about what's happened with the king. And we know what's happened so far, what has God done? God has done incredible things. He's, he's made the, the most powerful man in the world at that time fit, to show favor to Nehemiah, to provide resources to put him on location. And he says this, you know, when I've seen God work in my life, I've seen God inspire me to take a step, and then I've seen his favor, man, I've gotten bold. And so he's challenging them to be inspired by what God's already done. And they do respond, and they agree to this good work. Now verse 19, they're not the only stakeholders in this situation. There's the surrounding officials who have a vested interest in seeing Israel stay weak. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us, putting them down, saying, who do you think you are? You're nobody. Y'all just need to stay in your place. You don't need to rise above the position that you're already in. Just forget about it. And then they take it up a notch. What is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? This is classic intimidation, right? First of all, they put him down. And then second of all, they accuse them of being up to something. So this is classic intimidation. Verse 20, Nehemiah's response was, The God of heaven will give a success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So the God of heaven will give us success. So just as he already has up to this point, Nehemiah will continue to depend on God's favor as he takes steps. And you know what's encouraging 
is that at every point, God has only asked Nehemiah to take one step. Take just the next revealed step, just the next clear step. God's moved in his heart, he's revealed the next step, and all Nehemiah has to do is just do the next step. And that's what Nehemiah is encouraging his fellow Israelites to consider. Hey guys, let's take the next step. Let's fix things, let's do something about this. Because when you take just the next revealed step, you have no idea where it could lead. You have no idea where it could lead. Chapter 3, verse 5, just a couple of verses here that caught my attention. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. So even though some of the stakeholders bought in enough to take action, there are people who are not buying in, and they will not put their hands to the work. And you, we see class distinction here. We see the, you know, the wealthy folks, the nobles, they, they're not going to get their hands dirty to fix anything. And we find out later on that some of these guys were actually in league with the enemy. They had relationships with the local officials. They had, they had some money changing hands. But it didn't stop the bulk of people from getting behind the work. Chapter 3, verse 10. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Haramoth, made repairs opposite his house, and Hattush, son of Hashbaniah, made repairs next to him. So now this, this happens in several verses throughout chapter 3, but we see men who do repairs next door or across the street from where they live. So we see them taking personal responsibility for where they lived. And I think that's a key thought for us this morning. And then finally, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabbai, zealously repaired another section. So zealous repairs. These people had a vested interest in progress and development, and they were willing to take personal responsibility for their piece of the puzzle. You know, when I fold laundry, I know it's shocking, isn't it? I do fold laundry. It's actually something I kind of enjoy. I'm a little bit OCD there. But you know what the first thing I do when I fold laundry is? I'll get out the towels. Why do you think I do that? Easiest, yeah. They're the, they're the biggest, they're the fluffiest. And once I remove all the towels, I snatch out the pants. and Because they're just kind of bulky, you know, and then I, then I do the shirts. And once I've gotten the towels, the pants, and the shirts out, what's left? Yeah, just little stuff, right? And so I get really excited because when I've done the big stuff, get the, get the towels out, it's like, man, I'm really making some progress. You know, then I get the pants out, I'm really going for it. And then by the end, it just feels like I'm already done. So that's just the way I work. And isn't this how we are as people? We need to see some wins. We need to see some progress. And when we see that, then we'll be emboldened to really pitch in and really get to work. And that's exactly what was happening in this story. As we'll see by their perseverance and progress later, the Israelites became some inspired folks who were beginning to win. So that, that God showed them progress, he gave them movement, he showed favor, and when they saw that they were winning, it emboldened them to really get behind the work. So look at what God has done in this story. God knows the need of the Israelites. He has positioned somebody to drive the change. He has provided for that person to both go on location and, importantly, to have an audience. 
So he's positioned Nehemiah there on location, and because God's provided favor with the king, he's provided protection, he's provided provision, and then he's got these stories that Nehemiah gets to tell about what God's been up to, all of a sudden everybody's listening. So God's provided for him to go on location, and he's provided an audience, both essential pieces if you're going to move people to act. So this morning, just a few lessons about God. A few lessons about God, because I, I love to talk about him. You know, he's the main character in this story. Even though you've got humans doing their part, playing their role, who's the hero? It's the Lord. Lesson number one, God wants people who will go towards the mess. He wants people who will go towards the mess. You know, not folks who will phone it in, right? There's a mess over there. There's a mess over here. Somebody needs to do something about that, or I'm going to call again, right? Isn't that the way that we are? Somebody needs to do something about that. But God is a God who moves towards the mess. Isn't that why we love him? Isn't that why we sing his praises every Sunday? Because when God sees your mess, when he sees my mess, when he sees our sin, he doesn't just lean in, he moves towards the mess. Because God knows, and sometimes we realize that there is opportunity in the mess. You know, people who've got it all together, Jesus said it, you know, the, doc, the healthy don't need a doctor, it's the sick. So God moves towards the mess because there's opportunity in the mess. And we'll see Nehemiah in this story as he continues to take steps toward resolving things and fixing things and changing things. We'll see God open doors for people's hearts to open and for people's hearts to return to him. Now, this is not easy. You know, when you in your life, maybe it's, it, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe, maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a pattern in your life. And it's messy or in somebody else's life that you care about. But when you move towards the mess, you know in your soul that it's right. You know in your soul that it's right because you're not just phoning it in. You're not just pointing it out. You're willing to get your hands dirty. Yesterday we had a great day here at Chicken Barbecue, and so many people showed up. It was so encouraging, and everybody got their hands dirty. I mean, there was, there was chicken grease on, the, on, the, on Hal's tailgate, and I don't know if that's ever going to come off. But everybody got their hands dirty. Everybody got involved in the work. And by the end of the day, not only we had a really great day, we had a great opportunity for fellowship because we were working together. So God wants people who will move towards the mess. Number two, God is looking for people who will count the cost in order to finish the task. Now Jesus himself knew what it would cost for him to finish the task. Every step he took, every speech he made, Every miracle he performed, every time he confronted the religious leaders, he knew that that was one step closer to the cross. And he counted the cost, and he continued to take resolute steps forward. Thankfully, most of us are not on the same path. We're not headed to the cross. But he does want us to be intentional so we can finish the task. And think about Nehemiah, when he arrived on site, he, he was there to finish the task. And so he didn't start immediately by talking. He started by listening. He started by asking questions. He started by examining the situation. He started by preparing to make a pitch to recruit people who naturally had a vested interest anyway. 
He took measured steps. He counted the cost. You know, in his mind, he's thinking, I'm not going to go slow, but I'm going to be wise. I'm going to be wise because I want to finish the task. And then number three, telling God's stories is powerful. When you see in this story, he, he shares what God's done. He shares what God's going to do, and the people get ex- excited. Stories where it's clear that God is at work. I know many of you have God stories where God went towards your mess, where he, he rescued you from something, or somebody you care about. And when you tell those stories and somebody gets to hear it, it's a blessing because you know that God has been at work, God is at work, and God will continue to be at work. So how do we partner with God to mobilize a team? How do we partner with God to mobilize a team? Because that's what it took in this situation. Nehemiah couldn't do it himself. Number one is to gain personal knowledge of the need. Gain personal knowledge of the need. Where, where are the needs in your life today? Where are the needs in the lives of someone that you care about? You know, things that we tend to struggle with. A broken relationship. Is that a need in your life today? A relationship that just, it went, it went south, it's fractured, there's, you've tried, you've prayed, and it's not been repaired. Maybe it, for you it's a bad habit, something that you persist in, that you know it's not good for you, you know it's not good for the people you care about. Maybe it's a bad pattern, something that seems to happen in your life over and over again. Same story, different characters. The only main character that's the same is you. So gain, where's the need in your life? And then like Nehemiah, we need to go on location. We need to pray that God would enable us to go on location to understand that need better. Understand what, what's going on. Understand what, what's happening. Understand what we're thinking in the process. So gain personal knowledge of the need. Number two, prepare to recruit the stakeholders. Prepare to recruit the stakeholders. God is looking See, in this story, God is looking to inspire stakeholders. These are people who naturally had a stake in what happened, but either they didn't care or they were unaware. And so God was looking to use Nehemiah to inspire them to take action in their own best interest. So how do you recruit stakeholders? You talk about the need. You talk about what needs to be different. You, like Nehemiah did, you consider what it is you want to be different. And then you talk about a solution. What's a plan? Let's, let's take a step toward addressing this. And then we wait for their response. So who do you need to recruit to help you, maybe with your broken relationship, with your bad habit, with your unhealthy pattern? Do you need to recruit a professional, somebody to talk to? Or do you just need to recruit somebody that you trust? So what step is God asking you to take today? Because I know that you've got needs and I've got needs. And our world has big, big needs. So what can we do to understand the need to recruit people to help? And then number three, take responsibility for where you live. Like these guys, they worked zealously. My home is my responsibility. My neighborhood is my responsibility. My workplace is my responsibility. My community is my responsibility. My church is my responsibility. Is that where you're at today? Are you willing to take responsibility for where you live? You know, because I can't fix what's in your life. I can't, I can't take responsibility for what's going on in your neighborhood or your workplace, but you can, and vice versa. I need to take responsibility for where I live. 
So if we're going to make a difference, we need to gain personal knowledge of the need. We need to recruit the stakeholders, and we need to take responsibility for where we live. And all along the way, just like Nehemiah, we're depending on God. We're depending on the Lord for success. We know that without Him, we can do nothing. So what if we would be willing to move towards the mess in our lives and the lives of people we care about? What if we would be willing to count the cost in order to finish the task that God has laid on our hearts? What if we would be willing to tell God stories of provision and favor as we recruit the stakeholders to make a difference in their own lives and the lives of those they care about? What if we'd be willing to take personal responsibility for where we live? Let's pray that God who knows the needs will position us to drive change by allowing us to go on location and providing us an audience. I was listening to an interesting story recently. There was a gentleman who was working with an Italian NGO, and they went to Zambia, and they, and they got to Zambia, and they realized these people were starving. They don't have enough to eat. They're in a rural area. And the Italians immediately said, thank God we're here. Thank goodness that we've arrived just in time. And so they go about assessing the situation. They come on site. You know, they're not asking a lot of questions. They see what's happening. These guys are hungry, and we got the perfect solution. We're going to teach them to grow tomatoes. We're going to teach them to grow ripe, beautiful Italian tomatoes. And so they go through the process of saying, hey, guys, we know the need here. Let us help you fix it. But what they ended up having to do was hire the people to grow tomatoes because the people wouldn't do it themselves. So they say, okay, fine, you know, we'll, we'll teach them to fish so they can feed themselves. We'll start paying them salaries. And so they go through this entire process of growing these beautiful, ripe Italian tomatoes. And the crop is ready for picking. It's, they're ripe and they're ready. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this stampede of hippos comes out of the river. And they descend upon the crop of tomatoes. And within minutes, they've obliterated the entire crop. And the Italians are so discouraged. And then the locals come up. And they're just kind of chuckling. And they say, yeah, we kind of knew that would happen. We knew that would happen. And they said, well, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you tell us that this was going to happen? And they said, you never asked. You never asked. It didn't work. But later on, as he tells the story, when they got the locals involved in solving their own problems, things started to change. Personal buy-in led to change. May God inspire us to move towards the messes and see him change things. That we would be willing to gain personal knowledge of our needs and invite the stakeholders to partner with us as we each take responsibility for where we live. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for this morning and this opportunity to read your word and to be challenged, God, by what's in it. To see a man, just an ordinary man, placed in a position of authority and influence, God, and when you moved on his heart, when you broke his heart, God, he was willing to move beyond prayer to participation. He was willing to act, and he put his life on the line, and he saw your favor, he saw a king, a powerful man, give him permission to go on location. And then God, you yourself, provided him both wisdom and you provided him an audience, God. And, and thankfully, he was seeking you. He was crying out to you for favor. And then when he made the pitch to the people who would be most impacted by the work, 
they were ready to respond, God, because it is something that you had prepared all along. It was something that you were actively involved in all along. And so, God, as we consider our lives, we consider our needs, we consider our messes, Lord, we're just begging you to help us. We're begging you to give us wisdom, to give us perspective, God, so that we can understand what's going on so that we can recruit people to help us, that we can bear each other's burdens, and that we can see you make a big difference. And when we see momentum, Lord, when we see your favor, when we see you act, may it embolden us. May it challenge us, God, to keep taking steps and keep going for it and keep taking risks. Because we realize that even though our hands are on the wheel, God, it's actually you driving the change in our lives and in the lives and the people we care about and in our community and our neighborhoods. God, help us to take personal responsibility for where we live so that we can see you do great things. It's in Jesus' name I pray.